This podcast frequently contains topics and graphic depictions that may be considered sensitive for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Rusty Quill presents The Storage Papers. The Dolores Tape I really wasn't sure if or when I'd be back doing the show. There were some things that happened during the break that I'm not sure if I should talk about. Others I'm not quite sure if I'm ready to rehash. I let my phone go to voicemail twice before I picked it up. It was Brienne. I was surprised to see that she hadn't yet run away from all of this. I've certainly been trying to. But I have something. Something nobody else has. Hundreds, if not thousands, of documents related to the supernatural. What I had let take over my office and my garage, and my life, was a library of the dark and twisted and awful and Brienne needed my help. Several months ago, we put an end to a demon possessing a man named Malcolm Foy, but not without great personal loss. Brienne's brother, Benjamin Scanlon, was killed in the fight, as well as a Catholic priest named Father Jonathan Bank. The formerly possessed subject known as Malcolm Foy escaped, though gravely injured, and I thought that was the end. The end of demon's influence, the end of the Grenner. But I was wrong. Under the Grinner's coercion, Brienne was compelled to gather a plethora of medical documents, mostly neural scans of various individuals. She's not exactly sure how she obtained the documents, but she's a nurse who can make a fairly educated guess. Among those black and white images of human brains were some labeled Brienne Scanlon, and she wanted to know why. What did the Grinner want with scans of her brain? When did any of this happen? And who were all of these other people? Why were these documents labeled Project Hydra? So she went searching. She got close, but these people were hard to find. The ones who were still alive, at least. You see, most of the people that she had been able to track down were dead. All but one. She never told me his name. Only that he... Seemed like a completely normal guy. She followed him for a while, sat outside his house, watched him and his family. She told me they were happy, that she didn't want to inject her poison into it by bringing him into this. But then he died in his sleep. A man in his 30s doesn't just die in his sleep. Or at least not according to Brienne. It was odd and awfully convenient. So she started backtracking, making her way through all of the dead people she found in the files. And then she started digging deeper. They'd all died in their sleep, 
every last one of them. Brienne came to me because she thinks her own dreams are connected. She thinks that whatever happened to the people in those medical documents is happening to her too. She won't give much detail, but she says there's a man, or sometimes he's different men, and he's coming for her. I'm not certain what she means by that. But at her request, I've started doing some research, using the storage papers as a resource. I've been organizing them, trying to make sense of all the madness, and I've found some things that might be pertinent to what's happening to Brienne. I haven't mentioned it yet, not to Brienne, not to anyone, but I've been having some odd dreams myself. Dreams where I'm finding myself floating, floating above my sleeping form. I look down and see that I'm not breathing, not moving. I think I'm dead. I reach out to touch my chest and I fall back into myself. And that's when I wake up. I want to find out what happened to those people. What's happening to Brienne. What's also happening to myself. And so, I want to bring you along as we search through the storage papers looking for dreams. Looking for those that have died in their sleep. This is the first document I uncovered on the subject. It's the transcription of a recording made in the late 70s or early 80s. According to Ron's notes, he was given the transcription by a colleague sometime in the 2000s who referred to it as the Dolores tape. Unfortunately, the tape itself isn't in my possession, and later you'll understand why. Instead, I'm forced to rely on this transcription and hope my own voice is a suitable substitution. With that out of the way, I present to you the Dolores tape, side A. To be honest, it felt a bit awkward to say no. At the time, it just seemed rude. I certainly didn't want to come off as a snob. The man in the khaki suit lowered a paper match to his tobacco pipe, taking a long draw and flicking his wrist to extinguish the flame. As long as I have permission, I would like to stay here and monitor your dream, he said. I smiled. Oh, but of course. And with that, I carried on. I think I was baking a cake. Yes, I was baking a cake. You see, I had preheated the oven and gotten everything ready, let the butter rise to room temperature, but I just couldn't figure out what type of flour I was supposed to use. Not wanting to bug your grandfather, I decided to just go and pick some from the garden. The man in the khaki suit was jotting down notes on his clipboard, and when I looked in his direction, he gestured for me to carry on, almost shooing me away. I made my way to the back door, wanting to peruse the garden for the perfect flower for my cake. I looked back once more to see if the man was following me. He was not. Instead, he was heading towards the den where your grandfather was sleeping in his favorite chair. You know how much he loved that reclining chair. I warned the man, don't go in there and wake up my dear Harold, and don't turn off his westerns if you know what's good for you. The man nodded, but he didn't listen one bit. Instead, he smiled. An awful snarl. And he disappeared around the corner, deliberately making his way to the den, despite my warnings of waking Harold. Well, 
I certainly didn't want him disturbing my sweet old husband from his nap, and I found his behavior to be downright disrespectful. I'd made up my mind that this nasty man had to go, so I put my baking on hold to go give him a piece of my mind. I made my way in that direction towards the hallway that led to the den, to my dear Harold and that awful, awful man, but the hallway had become impossibly long. It went on for what looked like miles, the walls stretching and pulling like wet dough. There was a shimmer, like I was looking at a reflection, and I knew if I stepped a foot into that hallway, I would fall right through the floor. I knew I would die if I made one single step, so I closed my eyes. I pictured the den, Harold's westerns flickering on the television set, and I could see it. I could see what that monster was doing to my poor old Harold. His hand was reaching right into Harold's chest. I was in the den now, the twisting and bending hallway behind me, but I was too late. That awful man in the khaki suit told me as much. He told me he was just doing his job. He asked me if I would forgive him for what he'd done. I couldn't look at poor Harold. I knew that your grandfather was no longer with us. I was silent, frozen. The man in the khaki suit frowned, reaching into his jacket pocket to retrieve his pipe and a small box of tobacco to pack it with. I felt stuck. I'm just a little old lady. There's nothing I could do. When I was a girl, I remember walking into the coop to feed the chickens on your great-grandparents' farm, only to discover that a fox was ripping them to shreds. You have to understand, there's nothing malicious about a predator, but there's nothing remorseful about one either. I felt the same then as I did when I was a girl, staring into the eyes of that fox, afraid to turn my head and look at all the blood and feathers. The man opened his mouth to say something, but he never got out the words. Not before I woke up, alone in bed. It was unusual to wake up alone, your grandfather being such a heavy sleeper, never one to get up and get a glass of water or use the restroom. He always slept the whole night through. But not tonight, no. Tonight he was gone, and I was alone. I had wondered how he managed to get himself out of bed, let alone without waking me. Why was the door shut? Why hadn't he turned on the hallway light? As I made my way to the door, I heard a strange noise. And as I opened it and stepped out into the hallway, I saw it. The flickering gray light inching its way up and across the ceiling. The rising sound of static, on and off with each click. It was the old television in the den, flickering on and off with its spinning, clicking dial. I'd find my Harold in there, sitting in his favorite chair, head pointed up at the ceiling. They'd tell me it was a heart attack, and maybe it was. Or maybe it was whatever that nasty man in the khaki suit did to him in my dream. After that, I stopped having dreams about the man in the khaki suit, at least for now. 
the nurses come to check on me less. And when they do, it's never one that I recognize. They do odd things, too. They forget my medications, or give me the wrong ones at the wrong time of day. They ask me strange questions, personal ones. Like if anyone ever touched me as a child. If Harold ever hit me or beat me. They ask me if I believe in God. If I would ever betray God. It scares me deeply. It scares me to think of what they might do if I don't play along. If I tell anyone. According to the notation at the bottom of the page, it's at this point that the recording is interrupted by a visit from one of the nurses. Dolores has administered one of her medications, and someone can be heard whispering something inaudible before the tape recorder shut off. This concludes side A. The following is a transcript for side B. Franklin was a decent enough man though your grandfather never quite grew to like him. I think Harold was jealous, afraid Franklin might try to steal me away. After all, Franklin was quite handsome, with his tweed jacket, and of course he'd been a bachelor since the early 50s. He'd had to flee Mississippi. Being a black man in love with a white woman still wasn't easy back then. Don't let them tell you that it was. He'd always held out hope that he'd see that girl again. But that's a different story for a different time. Franklin told me that he saw the man in the khaki suit. He told me other folks had seen him too. That he had a habit of doing what he did to my poor Harold. I asked Franklin who else has that man killed. And he thought about it for a long time before he responded in the sweet southern Mississippi accent. Too many, Dolores. Too many. Folks don't want to talk about it. And if you see that man, you tell him leave you alone. And you close your eyes tight and don't open them until you wake up in your bed again. I remember Franklin cupping his hands over mine and saying a prayer. He told me that he'd miss Harold, though I doubt that was entirely true. His eyes swelled up and he asked me to promise him that if I ever saw the man again, I'd close my eyes until I woke up. And so I did. He asked me one more favor before he left. He took his hand off the doorknob and lowered his voice. He told me to hide all the pictures of my children and my grandchildren. He said if I didn't, then they'd take them away. I tried my best to remember, but I didn't think Franklin ever had any children. The next time I'd see Franklin, he'd be under a sheet, carried out of his bungalow on a stretcher. He didn't have any family, at least not any that he stayed in contact with. I hadn't seen him come out for at least a couple of days, and they hadn't stopped in to give him medications either. I can only imagine what he must have looked like in there, that poor soul. He was a sweet man, that Franklin. You know, I think about him a lot, 
almost as often as I think about your grandfather. Sadly, Franklin wasn't the last. Next was Oscar, Charlie, then Isabella and her husband Christopher. This is a retirement community. We're all old, we're getting there, and it may sound a bit crass, but this is what old people do. We die. But not like this. I've lived here for a long time now. Harold and I moved out here in our late 60s, and as I sit here today, I'm almost 82 years old, and it's never been like this. Never has death been a daily occurrence. This isn't right. I'm the only one left, and I'm the only one that really knows what he is. There's a note at the bottom of the page. It says, Remaining audio unrecoverable. Tape no longer functional. I was frustrated. I couldn't help but feel like the last piece of this puzzle was lost to time. So I did a bit of digging, and I managed to hunt down Ron's contact, the colleague who had passed along this transcript all those years ago. It wasn't easy. There was an old cell phone hidden away in a box of supplies that once belonged to Ron, It wasn't hard sifting through the decades of old contacts to find out who the old cop buddies were and who Ron's other colleagues were. I made some cold calls. Most of the numbers were no longer in service, and so I was surprised when someone finally picked up. I asked her if she knew anything about the Dolores tape. She laughed. She'd heard all about it, but never got a chance to listen to it. I asked her if she knew who had given the transcript to Ron, and in turn, she asked me if I had a pen. She couldn't give me his number. Instead, she gave me an email address. Told me it was still a shot in the dark. She hadn't spoken to him or Ron in years. To be honest, I didn't feel hopeful going on a stranger's hunch. But it was the only lead I had. If he didn't know anything about the Dolores tape, then maybe he knew someone who did. He emailed back a couple of days later. And this is what he had to say. If you're looking for Ron, I don't know that I can be of much help. If you're just looking for information on the Dolores tape, I'm not sure I can be of much help with that either. What I can tell you is that she was absolutely a real woman. I met her once. I was never able to follow through with a full investigation because a few days after I met with her, she was found dead died in her sleep. It was never a cause of death listed because you usually don't need an autopsy at that age. When you're over 80 years old and you die in your sleep, that's what they call dying peacefully. Ask anyone and they'll tell you. That's the way to go. I'm not so sure. What's interesting is that the day after Dolores passed away, that whole retirement community burned down to the ground. On the news, they insisted that 23 people had died in that fire. A tragedy. But I had been to that property just days prior. It was practically empty. I saw one of the on-site staff, of course, though they dressed more like pharmacists or scientists than what I would have thought nurses dressed like. Unless they were having an early Christmas party when the fire broke out, I don't know how the hell 23 people could have died in that fire. 
I never saw any sign of a single resident except for Dolores. They never published the names of those that perished. I was never able to track down anyone who had family on the property either. It was almost like that place never existed before it burned down. But it did. I was there. But I know the real question you have on your mind. It's the same question everyone's asked me about the tape. What Dolores was saying when the tape cut out. The simple answer is that I don't know. The first time I played the tape, I immediately started making a transcription. It just makes things easier to reference when you have it all on paper. And thank God I did. Because when I got to that part, near the end of side B, the tape recorder that I was playing it back on just sort of combusted. Not really a big fire or anything, but enough to let off some black smoke and ruin the tape recorder. The tape melted. I was never able to hear the end of it. Unfortunately, I'm just as much in the dark as you are. If I really try, I can trick myself into thinking that something wouldn't allow me to hear the end of that tape. Something wanted that story to die in the fire with everything else. I guess it sort of did. The only person who knows what she said is the person who recorded it, Dolores' grandson. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to get in contact with him since her passing. Believe it or not, he's the one who reached out to me. I told him to go to the police, and he told me that he tried. He was 16 then, and this was the best he could do. None of it really makes any sense. It's the reason I gave up on paranormal investigating. It's the reason I passed that transcript to Ron. If I could give you this one word of advice, Jeremy, it's to quit with the podcast and quit looking into this stuff before you get yourself killed. I sent a follow-up email just to make sure I had permission to share this exchange on the podcast. He agreed on the condition that he be allowed to remain anonymous. I did some more digging after that. I looked for the burned-down retirement community, and when that didn't work, I changed the keyword to nursing homes, and then to assisted living facilities. I couldn't find anything that sounded quite like what Ron's former colleague described in that email. I did some other searches, looking for anyone else's experiences with the man in the khaki suit, but I didn't really find much online. I like the way Ron's former colleague put it. It all died in the fire. However, I did find one thing. Something that cut a bit through my numbness. Reanimated some of the fear I must have had resting in my bones since dealing with the Grinner. It was a forum post that reads as follows. Hey, does anyone know how I can get in touch with that girl that was talking about seeing a man in a beige or brown suit every night in her dreams? I remember everyone telling her that they sounded more like nightmares. I'm just a bit weirded out because ever since I read that, I've been having those dreams about him too. I reached out to the poster, but I haven't yet got a response. Something tells me I'm not going to, and I hate knowing that. I have a feeling there's more to this, 
The story may have been burned away a long time ago, but it's just a piece of something much larger. Something tells me that other pieces lay somewhere in these boxes. Somewhere in the storage papers. I just have to put it all together again. Thank you for listening to The Storage Papers, a Grinner Media production. This season on The Storage Papers, we've decided to go all in to create more content than ever. We're expanding the free podcast you're hearing now to 20-episode seasons, released every two weeks. But we're also starting a Patreon campaign to provide additional content on our off weeks as well. If you just can't get enough of The Storage Papers, and would like to earn some rewards while supporting our show please head over to patreon.com slash grinnermedia for a detailed list of rewards we're offering. Before we leave, I'd like to share a trailer for A Voice from Darkness, which just recently launched Season 2. If you're not familiar with the show, it's about a parapsychologist who does a radio show and helps callers with their supernatural problems. If you enjoy hearing about creepy experiences, then I think you're going to love this. You find yourself alone in an abandoned manor. The furniture moves of its own accord. Whispers resonate from empty rooms. The dead are unquiet all around you. You need my help. This is A Voice From Darkness. A Voice From Darkness is a horror and dark fantasy audio drama. Join parapsychologist and radio broadcaster Dr. Malcolm Ryder as he helps those who suffer the supernatural. Available through all major podcast applications.